Welcome, everybody. Second Thessalonians is the book that we're studying. We're working our way through the, Thess- the Thessalonian letters of Paul, and um, in the uh, we're, today, uh, Lord willing, we should finish the uh, what chapter? Chapter one. I want to begin with verse uh, eleven, but let's quickly set the context here again. Um, the uh, the Thessalonians, uh, a small church, a church that's on a major east-west highway, uh, they're undergoing significant persecution uh, by the Roman governor, uh, and that persecution is what is causing them to, um, and probably due to some false teachers, to think incorrectly about uh, theology, and particularly what we call eschatology, or end time theology and uh, Paul is really going to address this in a major way in chapter 2 which we'll get to in in just a minute but at the end of his corrective in chapter 1 which we studied and we got on a long bunny trail last week we didn't even get to Thessalonians we were in Romans um, answering a question that uh I believe it was originally Woody, and then there were some additional questions on top of that. So that bunny trail is now done. We're not going back to it. So uh, he now, uh, he is Paul. He has a short prayer for the Thessalonians that begins in verse 11, and it's really in two verses. But it's one of those prayers that is loaded with a lot of truth, and it it has the kind of... um, Um, dynamic to it that I think can help us as we think about our prayer life but it also teaches us some theology alright so I want to look at the prayer with you it's 11 and 12 of 2nd Thessalonians chapter 1 to this end we pray what end the previous phrase of, of the verse because our testimony to you who believed, you believed it. To this end, we always pray for you. There again is that remarkable aspect of Paul's prayer life. Always pray for you. I wonder what that means. But uh, it certainly means they were on his mind a great deal. Now, what's the purpose of the prayer? What's the point of the prayer? That our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every Resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. So make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power. That's not a typical prayer that you prayed this morning for someone, is it? I doubt that you've ever prayed anything quite like that. So there are some things we need to do because honestly, I think we can learn a lot here that you may be worthy of his calling. Phrases actually. All right, I'm going to use a different uh, color here. Can you read this? Is this all right? Can you read it? Matt, this corresponds a little bit with what we did this morning. (laughs) That's all right. This is a prayer that is... um, 
the the language of it is a little hard for us because we don't normally we don't normally uh, talk like this or think like this. But he is praying for them. He is praying for them as a, a group of believers who are being being intensely and severely persecuted, and who are being fed some false teaching, and and that's going to cause him to look at chapter two, where he's going to do some corrective things. But worthy of his calling now. His calling. What does that mean? We'll get to worthy in just a minute. Um, who's the his of his calling? Jesus. Okay, God. Jesus. It's God. It's, it's the Lord. So his calling. Um, his calling, that's one, of, that's one of Paul's favorite words. It's a metaphor. It's one of his favorite words for salvation that you are worthy of his calling upon your life. Um, his calling upon your life is referring to your position in Christ. And what is your position in Christ? Okay, you, you obviously didn't hear that, so I, I will repeat it. When God looks at you, if you have put your faith in his Son, from God's perspective, how does he look at you? What does he see when he looks at you? Do you understand what I'm asking? Okay, I see. Okay, it sounds like we're speaking in tongues. So I have about seven people. Jim, you were saying something. Justify. And what does that mean? Okay, okay. From God's perspective, when he looks at you, if you put your faith in his son, I'll use myself as an example. When he looks at Jim Ackman, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. Now you understand that, don't you? That is the profound, central message of the book of Romans. And it's all over the place in the other parts of the New Testament. But that's the main part of the book of Romans. And so what, what he is teaching us here is God's desire and Paul's prayer is that Listen very carefully how I say this. That our walk, our life, how we live, will match with our position. Do I need to repeat that? That the way we live, our walk, the practice of our life, will reflect our position. In other words, more. Now, these, I, I think this... In every church in America that loves the Lord Jesus and honors his word, these are truths that just need to be taught again and again and again and again. And I know that's true because it keeps coming up in the New Testament again and again and again. It isn't only stated once in the book of Romans. It is everywhere in the New Testament. When you put your faith in Christ, and I've, I've written this on the board, and I don't have as much room here as I do over in the other place, so, but I'll just, I'll, I'll just say it. But I know I've written this on, on the board, and I did this this morning. Um, when, 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 when Jesus died on the cross, God the Father put all the sin of the world on Christ. And when you put your faith in Christ, he, that is the Father, then puts Christ's righteousness on you. It's called the great exchange. God puts our sin on Christ, puts Christ's righteousness on us. That's justification. So Paul is praying, I pray, for the Thessalonian believers, I pray that you will live your life in a way that is worthy, that matches, that reflects, how else can I say it? It is in sync with your position. So let's put it on. I'm going to keep saying the same thing about two or three different ways. My prayer for you, Paul is saying, is that your practice, i.e. how you live your life, will match your position. Because remember, I'm going to say the same thing, but I'm going to say it a different way now. Position that you were given. That's right. Get. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Because remember, again, the difference is 
when you are justified, that's a point in your life. If you put your life on a line, and you know, a line is just a succession of points. You put your life on a line at a point is when you put your faith in Christ. Whether you can exactly remember that point in that hour, that's not from God's perspective. He knows when that is. But at that point, you are then declared righteous. Then the rest of your life is dis described in the Bible as sanctification. It is that process of God bringing you into conformity with your position. So I've said the same thing about three different ways. Some using kind of doctrinal language, others just using very simple language. Paul, is, it's, a, it's a wonderful prayer that your life and how you live it and practice and walk and just how you, is going to match what God says is already your position. That you will become, let's put it another way, that you will become fully sanctified by the grace of God. How long does the sanctification process take? It takes our lifetime. It, it, it doesn't ever end, really. So it's that, it, and I, I've said this a number of ways to you, and I'm going to keep saying it. When you really understand this, <laughs> and I don't mean you just, okay, I, yeah, I can repeat it. No, I mean you really understand it. That you are righteous in God's eyes, and now he is practically, I mean, in terms of pragmatic, pragmatic over your life. He is conforming you to the image of what you really are, already are. And so that's why it is hard for us sometimes, because our, our life, we know the point when we trust Christ. We know what that transaction is. We know what happens there. But you know, our lives are still, it's valleys and mountains. It's valleys and mountains. Because we live in a fallen world, we, li we live in a rebellious world, and in our own lives, that transformation is we, you've heard me talk about this before, we have habits and practices and sinful things that we did all of our life, we come to Christ, that doesn't automatically end. That struggle is still there. Just look at Paul's account of himself in Romans 7. He says, I do what I don't want to do, and I can't seem to do what I want to do. That's the struggle. And so what he's saying here is, my prayer for you is that your calling in Christ, you, your walk will be worthy of that. They'll match. And then he talks about two aspects of this sanctifying grace, this sanctifying process. That you will resolve for good, that will, you will every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. In other words... And it's really fascinating how he does this, because he puts both of these on the, or excuse me, all three of these on the shoulders of God. That God will do this, and God will affect this, and God will affect this. Because, quite frankly, <coughs> the author and energizing power of both justification and sanctification is God. So, what? Again, ESV has translated that resolve. We don't talk too much like that in the 21st century. So what would be another word for resolve? Resolve for good. If you're resolved to do something, what does that mean? Committed. Oh, okay, uh, or just committed. there. Committed. Determined. Determined. Yeah, determined. There's a, there's a fortitude there that you resolve. You are determined. You are committed to doing that which is good. And that's easy for us to say that. And we can say that's what we want to do. But our old nature and our old patterns can make it difficult to do that sometimes. But over time, remember that sanctification, justification is an event, sanctification is a process. So over time, you see that deeper and deeper resolution, deeper and deeper commitment, greater and greater fortitude, a, 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 a deep determination to do that which is good in the eyes of God. And again, I mean, the, and the comforting thing always for us is God is at work within me, both to will and to do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2 verse 13. 
my God is at work in my heart. And so Paul is saying, I'm praying for you Thessalonians that God will affect this resolve in your heart to do good. And that's about sanctification. It isn't to earn his favor. That's settled. It's that I'm resolved to do what is good in the eyes of God. And then thirdly, it's the other two that he will affect a work of faith by his power. That, again, this, the way he writes is unusual for Paul. He usually doesn't do it this way, but it's almost like it's so abstract that because it's abstract, we lose the dynamic of, of what he's really saying. So let's take it apart. Every work of faith by his power. Oh, I know why I can't move this. It's stuck on this cord. <laughs> okay. Every work of faith by his power. Connect faith, which you know what that is, with the prepositional phrase, by his power. The prayer is that, that God will make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good, and every work of faith by his power. Let's connect this to work of faith by his power. The book of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what is he saying here as his prayer? Every work of faith by his power. Connect the two dots. Well, our sanctification, so what we're doing, I mean, he's living within us. He, I mean, we're not, we're not doing it on our own, but it's his work within us that we're working that out. Good. And we are doing so by his power. power. Now listen. Justification requires faith. In other words, you are justified by faith. Does sanctification require faith? Yes. It does. Because sanctification is the process, but you still are trusting the Lord every moment of every day during the process. So Paul is saying, as you do your work of faith, you do it by his power. What's he saying? You can't do it on your own. So the, the result, and it's really, we are justified by faith, but we're sanctified by faith. Now in the sanctification process is we are obedient. We desire to walk in obedience with the Lord. But still, it's, it's independence and faith on, on, in the Lord. That's why in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, that wonderful hall of faith, you have person after person after person after person held up for us as examples of people who had faith. And people, every, if you look at every one of those people, you, you know what I'm talking about in Hebrews 11, that just hero after hero, Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and all that. Every one of them had flaws, but they still were people of faith. Every one of them slipped. They had those valleys in their life, but they were still people of faith. And when, the, and this is, this is where we're headed, when all of this is affected in your life, who gets the glory for it? God does. Glory goes to God. So look at the last part of this verse. Look at the last part of this prayer. It's a purpose clause. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's prayer, if I can put it in one succinct sentence, live your position in dependence on God so that he gets the glory. If you want it in one succinct sentence, the prayer is, Lord, enable them to live their position in dependence on you so that you get the glory. Now, 
Only the Holy Spirit knows why Paul didn't say it that simply. <laughs> and I mean, but the phrases are important to just kind of pull them apart like we did. But it's the, that's the bottom line of his prayer. Lord, make them worthy of your calling, the position they have in Christ. And Lord, teach them dependence on you, the resolve to do good, that the works of faith are in dependence on you and your power. Because when that happens, you get the glory. Does that make sense? It is, from that perspective, then, this is really a powerful prayer. That's the kind of prayer, that, that's what I want people praying for me. And I suspect for you as well. Jim, you had a question. It talks about every desire for goodness, which I presume is God's desire for the, you know, the spiritual quality of our life. Absolutely. And then of, of the work of faith, which I would, I don't know if I'm right in this, but about sort of the outworking, how we're engaged in ministry and other things, or are they synonymous? I mean, is one inward and one outward focus? You know, that's a, that's a good distinction. And I, I think that's a helpful distinction, yes. The resolve is certainly that the inner determination, fortitude, commitment, all that. And then the, the, the works of faith, that is, what does that then look like in my job, in, in my, with my children, with my spouse? I mean, all of those relationships as well as everything I do. Because the ultimate, and this, this is, again, is a consistent message of the Scriptures, my, my favorite point to go to is always 1 Corinthians 10, 32, 31. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But the, all the preceding stuff are just this, 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 this focus on faith and trust in God. And so, yeah, I like that. One focuses inward, the other focuses outward. And those li- they're linked. You, you, you can't have one without... Did you, did you all get what Jim was just saying? It was really it was a helpful way, uh, another helpful way to put this. As what he is really, what is he? He's really saying here. Well, Jim, I was going to say too. The first, I think, was that that what he said. They would see your good work to bring glory to your Father in heaven. So people would see that, not just mm. be silent, mm. but yeah, but they would see that to bring glory to Him. That's right. That's right. That's right. In the, in the, as a Muslim, you would have that struggle to find your identity because you don't have that point in your life where you're saved. Because you're always working to get saved, so you don't really have a point to, to work on um, your sanctification. Yeah, and and those words aren't even words that the, the Muslim theology uses. But the, the, and but and part of that is praying for a worthy of his calling. Yeah, and I was trying to relate that to. Him. I don't. Th- I don't know I'm if you can. I don't know, I don't know if you can. There isn't that. That's no, because that's right, and they're they're constantly. There is not. I, I will use Christian phrases to describe it. For a Muslim, it's tragic. It really is. For a Muslim, there is no assurance. There is no assurance for eternity for you. That's why it, you just you work you work hard. Well, I shouldn't. There's only one exception, at least according to to the Quran's teaching. If you die in a holy war, if you die in a jihad, it says you instantly go to paradise. But Leaving that aside, um, it is it is really a very difficult. The and I've I've read this and I've only talked with one that ever shared that, but uh, I've read it over and over again. That that a, a Muslim that really thinks about it is terrified of death. They're just terrified of it. Again, and, and now those who are fanatical commitments to the jihad, that's a different story, but that's still a minority. That's not where most of the 1.2 billion Muslims on earth are not ISIS people. But anyway, they're terrified of that because they don't know, and this is the the way it's put, I don't know if I've done enough for Allah. Isn't that horrible? I mean, just think about it. Just think of that word. Think of those words. You never see that in the Bible. Because the Bible teaches you very clearly if you put your faith in Christ, you are justified. There is security there. There is assurance there. Now, again, I mean, you know, it's it's not just 
Okay, okay, I guess I'll believe in Jesus. That's not what we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about the clarity of understanding of your sin and your need for Savior and Jesus. I mean, all of that. But I'm assuming all that. The Bible says, Romans 8, one of my favorite passages, nothing, you believe in nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And he has that long list of possibilities. See, another thing about the Muslims, Hindus, all of that. Yeah, it's not just Muslims. But, but you talk to them, I always try to, in a nice and gracious way, were they without sin? Mm. And they said, no. Because they're, they're even their leaders are sinners. I mean, the standard is perfection. Be perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Uh, that's that's where I start with them sometimes, mm-hmm. but in a gracious way. Mm-hmm. Right. Were they without sin? Right. No. Right. Because that disqualifies them right there. I mean, mm-hmm. from our side, you know, try to help them understand that. Yeah. It, it's that's even in the concept of this gentleman bringing up here is even true of, was true of me before I became a Christian. I mean, I was always wondering, am I good enough? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or I don't want to go to church because I don't want to burn <laughs> in the pew or something. Yeah. I was comparing myself yeah, that's to right. people I thought were the best being yeah. people I yeah. ever knew. You know, yeah. If I can just be as good as them, maybe I'm sure he's in if he can make it. You know. And so it, 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 I mean, it's a life-changing experience to get to a point where it's not dependent on what you do. That's right. Every, every Listen, this, there is, this is absolutely true. And you can examine the evidence if you want to take the time to do it. Every religion and every worldview is about human being trying to reach God. For the Hindu, it's I must do enough good works to break the cycle of reincarnation. And if I don't, I'm going to keep being recycled. And if I'm not good, I may be recycled as an ant. Now, I'm being extreme, but that's the thinking for Buddhism. They call it moksha. I must do enough good stuff that breaks the cycle of reincarnation or just keep being reincarnated. For, for, for Islam, it's I must do enough good work. It starts with the five pillars of Islam to merit Allah's favor. I must reach Allah. And you could just go on and on and on. What is Christianity? What does genuine biblical Christianity say? It is God reaching down to us in Christ. That's what the incarnation is all about. And that's what the cross is all about. And it's God does everything. You've heard me say this a dozen times. Matt just, then God, when that's all done, Christ's work is all done, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, God puts the gift on the table for every human being and says, pick it up. It's there for you. I've paid it all. Your sin problem, which every world religion has some concept of evil and sin. And okay, now I'm going to merit it. And boy, I'm not living as good a life. I'm not sure because he's a lot better than I am. That's not what gets you into heaven. Performance, virtue, wisdom, a good life. It's understanding that Jesus Christ paid it all for you, and you must appropriate all that by faith. And you pick it up and say, this is mine. And now your new identity is in Christ. That's your new identity. And I'm telling you that I have I've just started working on something in that area, but I am convinced that is one of the most important dimensions of the gospel for the 21st century. Because what's happening in Western civilization, among other things, is we're seeing that we're now our culture is defining identity as sexual identity. It's your sexuality. That's your identity. You and I don't. I'm not trying to dump on anything, but. My identity is I'm gay, or I'm lesbian, or I'm transgender, or I'm bisexual. You know what I mean? That's my identity. The Bible says to us, the message of the gospel says to us, no, that's not your identity. Your identity is to come into Christ, to be in Christ. 217 times in the New Testament, to be in Christ. And when that occurs... And what I mean is when a person puts their faith in Christ, that being in Christ, that really does define who you are. That's what, by the way, that's what the mean, that's what Christian means. Christian means I'm a little Christ. I identify with Christ. The people in Antioch in the first century were first called Christians for that reason. And that that's powerful, man, because 
individuals today in the 21st century are struggling with, what is my identity? Who am I? And now there's a militancy about saying it's my sexuality. That defines who I am. And it, it is, it's even more important, you know, 50 years ago it used to be my identity is what I do. You know, I'm a, I'm a day laborer. I'm a carpenter. I'm a plumber. I'm a CEO. I'm a banker. That's my identity. You know, that, isn't, that doesn't seem to be as important anymore. Now the identity, that, the way people define themselves, is a sexual gender identity. That's prominent, and that's becoming militant. That's becoming difficult because you can hardly have a conversation. So uh, back now to the book of Thessalonians, Paul is, Paul is praying for them that one day will understand their identity in Christ and what God is doing in their lives. He prays for that. Worthy of their calling, but called their position in Christ. And that that faith will extend to the sanctifying work of God so that he gets the glory. And did you notice? Did you notice how the prayer ends? According to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That this, and this, that this is the correct way, the grammar of this is, the correct grammar is this. If all of this together is according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, of God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he add it that way? Why does he no, add it? That's not a bad way, the right way to say it. Why does he add that to the prayer? I mean, he, he, could have, he could have put the period glorified in you, period, and we'd have got it. Got it, Paul. But he adds, according to the grace of God, our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So is according, uh, I don't quite know how to articulate this, is according used in the sense of Talking about the, sort of the unlimited nature of what we've been afforded before, is according talking more about the character of God's grace that gave us something that was completely undeserved? Or it's probably a combination, but I think a little more of the focus is on the latter. The, the Greek word is kata, according to his kata, and that always introduces a standard, a standard for something. And so the standard, if you want to put it another way, the standard of all that God's done is his grace. Why is that powerful? Or why should that be powerful? Or why is it powerful in your life and in your thinking when you really start meditating upon it? It works in conjunction with love and justice. Well, that's, it does. It's a bridge between love and justice. It does, that's right. And, and I mean, what, what is the nature of grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. God, okay, that's a nice across. God's <laughs> riches at Christ's expense. In, in other words, he is reminding the Thessalonians in his prayer, you didn't deserve any of this. You didn't earn any of this. What explains it is God's grace. Because grace by definition means, I mean, you can't earn grace. That's contradictory. You can't earn grace. Do you know what I mean? You, just, you can't earn it. You can't merit grace. That's a contradiction in terms. So it's, it is, and this is really important. I think it's very important for us in the 21st century. No human being can merit or earn this. It is offered on the basis of God's grace to us. And that drives you back to the fact that, boy, this really does bring glory to God because it's based on his grace. That's why the scriptures talk about you and I, that we are God's trophies. We are the trophies of his grace. It tells us in Ephesians, there's coming a day, I'm assuming it's, it's in the kingdom, there's coming a day when God will hold us up before the angels because they don't understand this. I mean, they do what God wants to do. They don't understand because they're not lost. They don't need salvation. and they, they just can't understand why God does all this. And God will say, here is the reason I did all this. He's going to hold all of us up who have put their faith in Christ's sake. This is what it's all about. We are the trophies of his grace. And it's, it's just a reminder in this prayer. It's just a reminder to us of 
that everything that we have from the perspective of God, indeed everything we have, period, but is really due to God's grace. He owes us nothing, one theologian said years ago, but he offers us everything. He owes you nothing. He is under no obligation to do anything for you because you have chosen to rebel against him. But his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion knows no bounds that he's doing everything he possibly can, relentlessly pursuing you with his grace. And when you respond to that, you start to understand what the Apostle Paul's praying up here. Woody. Yeah, Jim, where is it in the Bible that makes reference to God knocking on our door? And well, open the door? that's in Revelation uh, chapter 3, about 20, yeah. What was it? Uh, Revelation 3, 20. At least I think that's the verse you're referring to. Yeah. I'm, I'm not totally positive. But... All right. Um, and the way we have that, a position above the angels is because we're in his image, and the angels yeah, are in his image. Yeah, that's right, that's right. But the angels aren't automatons. No. Because they could rebel if they Yes, them. yes. But they don't. That they're not redeemable. Those those one third of the angels that followed Satan as rebellion are not redeemable. God didn't die for them. That's just clear. So they will be in the lake of fire. What? Anyway. All right. Now that um, I don't want to leave this, but I will leave this. Yes, John. Yeah, absolutely. Please. When when it says and um, and that by. <clears throat> His power, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. Is that where doing good, good works and things, is that part of that there? Not, I mean, you're justified by faith, of course, but, but what does that mean there, fulfill every good purpose of mm -hmm. yours and every act prompted by your faith? That's, that, that's, the, that's the transformed life that results. That's the transformed life that is the product of, of sanctification. That, I mean, that's exactly right. We then, yeah, it, but it's, that's right. But it's the transformed life evidencing the good works that are sourced in the power of God by faith. You see what I'm saying? I mean, that, everything you said is right. As long as we keep it clear that those, those good works, and that's, there's nothing wrong with putting it that way, are really the result of our faith and dependence and trust in God. That's, that's why he adds every work of faith, the works of faith sourced in his power to get us, keep getting us away from any idea that our, quote, good works, close quote, earn us favor with God. It's impossible. Well, it's like the, two, the Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which we know, but then in verse 10 says, for, uh, we are for by grace you are saved through faith, and not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before so that we would walk in them. There you go. Okay. But you've got the faith in Christ first, mm -hmm. then the good works that follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Now, I... I decided to, at first I was thinking, this is really a hard little prayer. Maybe we'll just skip this. But I decided when I was studying for this morning, I'm not going to skip it. So I hope it was okay that we didn't skip it. I think it's just a good reminder of the kind of prayer that Paul prays for these believers. And it's, 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 it teaches us an awful lot, as a, in a sense, as a reminder. But teaches us this is what's going on in your life. And in my life. Okay? You, you, you asked a very provocative question when you said, you made the statement that he could have put the period after maybe, that Jesus may be glorified in you, period. But he added this other. And to me, as I'm reading that, that's a very challenging question. I'm glad you asked it because it, it helps me to see that I started analyzing it based on the reflection in verse 11 there about the work of faith. Well, that's something that I can do, but it's not about us. That's right. Because when he goes on and says, according to the grace of God. That's right. In other words, it's a folks, it's already done. That's right. We just have to receive it. That's right. 
That's right. And it's, I mean, I've often put it this way. God always deals with us on grace, basis of grace, not because we deserve it. I mean, it's, that's, that's God's methodology always. We speak of it God's common grace, which he shows to every human being. Jesus says the sun doesn't just shine on my property. It shines on my Buddhist neighbor up the street and my atheist neighbor on the other side of the street, and both of those I, that, that I know. It rains there and the sun shines there too. That's common grace. God doesn't owe them that, but God chooses to bless them in that way. And the Bible says he does that so that they will come to a knowledge of who he is. Some reject that, as you know. And then there's the saving grace of God, and then there's the sustaining grace of God, where he sustains us day by day by day. I came to understand that, that sustain. Did I ever tell you that story? I came to understand that sustaining grace of God in a powerful way as a, as a months-old minister. <laughs> I mean, I'd just been ordained. Did I ever tell you that story the first time I said communion? Okay, let me quickly tell you. It was, uh, I was young, and I was just getting started, and when I was starting in ministry, communion was in glass cups, not the plastic throwaways. Glass cups were always heavy, and you put the, put the wine or the grape juice in those, and then the, the wafers were big. I mean, and, and these containers were heavy. Today, they're really light. So this is what I'm thinking. I'm gonna, they wanted me to do the communion for that Sunday and because of my recent ordination. So what I'm thinking about is not, you know, what, Lord, help me what I'm going to say in the scripture I read that I don't tell me. It was, what if I drop these things as I distribute them to the elders? To, you know, that's what I was thinking. Because I'm telling you, they were heavy. And it was, you, you do it, two of them, two at once, because this is a big church. So, I mean, I'm just standing there. And we at the church, we always, the, the, the pastoral staff came in the two side doors. It was a multi-staff church. So I'm over here, and over here, and the, the guy right in back of me was the worship pastor. And I must have really looked terrified. My body language must have been absolute, total anxiety and fear, because that's what I was feeling. His name was Jerry. He puts his arm around me. He says, Jim, how you doing? I said, Jerry, I'm not doing well at all. I said, I'm pretty anxiety-ridden about this. And then this is what he said. Well, Jim, I suppose God's grace is sufficient for that, too. <laughs> you, do, you do not know how powerful that was for me. I mean, it's something I'd studied and learned and knew, but to, yes, even God's grace can sustain me through saying communion, leading it, and handing all this stuff to the elders. And I didn't drop anything. So it just and it was just it was a, it was a, honestly a terrifying moment. My mind was on the wrong things, but I, I, God understood that. So He sends this good friend of mine to remind me of the sustaining grace of God. And that that for me that was the most perfect object lesson I could imagine on the sustaining grace of God. All right, let's go to chapter 2. <clears throat> now, um, we have to remember something. So let me, before we start reading verse 1, let me remind you of a couple of things. The Thessalonian church was a church, I told you, you know, where up in Macedonia, you know where it was, major road, east-west road, and so on. And it was a church to which Paul had taught eschatology. He had taught them about the end times. He had taught them about the return of Jesus. Keeping in mind that this is a church that was severely persecuted, they have gone through very, and were going through very, very harsh times. Someone in their congregation, we don't know whether it was somebody in the church or somebody who had come in from the outside, was teaching them, and this is what they were teaching, that the day of the Lord had already begun. Now, I, I, I want to, if you don't understand what I'm about to go over, real, I'm going to do this really, really quickly. If you don't understand what I'm about to go over, unfortunately this eraser isn't erasing all this. Let's try this one. It's a little better. Um, 
then what I'm about to do as we go over this isn't going to make sense. So give, give me about 60 seconds, well, the way we go, five minutes, to just quickly go over this. I'm sorry, this isn't erasing very well, but I hope you can see it. Paul is going to use this phrase, the day of the Lord. Okay? Uh, it comes from the Old Testament. This is an Old Testament teaching, and it is, and you see it in the prophets, major and minor, it's an Old Testament teaching that is taught in the Old Testament and by Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Okay? The day of the Lord is a phrase that is used of the end times, and it's a time that refers to, I should say, it's a teaching that refers to a time of judgment and a time of blessing. The judgment, and this is, and that's why the day of the Lord, it is a time when God, the Hebrew here is Yahweh, when God breaks into history for judgment. And words like darkness and doom and gloom and earthquakes and, I mean, all of the things that are associated with the calamities of judgment. And then blessing. When God, uh, the words that are associated with the time of light, a time when God returns, a time when he sets up his kingdom, a time when he rules and reigns, a time when sin is defeated and so on. So it's, it's really referring to, if I can, I think you know what I mean by this, it's really referring to the end times. And when you start talking about the end times, you talk about what we call the second advent. What's the second advent? The rapture. Well, that's the first part of it. And it, it culminates in the return of Christ, right? So it's all the events wrapped around the return of Jesus Christ. It's seven years. And that, yes, yeah, rapture, seven years, and it's return. Yep, that's the details. For now, I, if, if, if it's okay, I want to stay away from the details. We'll get to that in a minute. The point is, Paul had taught them this. Okay? And remember, judgment, persecution, difficult timing, calamities. That before the blessing, God will judge. And remember, they are being persecuted. It's harsh times for them. And somebody comes into the church and says, the day of the Lord has begun. Now, if you were a Thessalonian believer, how would that affect you? <gasps> Did I miss it? <laughs> Maybe the Lord came and I, I wasn't taken? Oh, my goodness. So, you know, Paul, Paul he, he's, remember, he's down in Corinth. He gets word of this. And so he writes this little letter and says, now, wait a minute. And so chapter 2, if I use the word corrective, do you know what I mean? Chapter 2 is a corrective to this false teaching. And what he wants to establish with crystal clear clarity is the day of the Lord does not begin until three events occur. And that's what he's going to teach in chapter 2. And what he wants to do is he wants, he, he wants us to be as a corrective to these dear people to restore their hope and their assurance. Because, I mean, it, you know, it, Matt used the word rapture. If somebody came in and, and you walked into a room and it was a scheduled meeting with other believers and you were the only one in the room, you would think, <gasps> and it's 10 minutes into the meeting, 30 minutes into the meeting, if, I mean, depending on who you are, you might, oh my, did the rapture occur and I missed it? You know, I don't know if you even know what I'm talking about. But it's that kind of reaction that the Thessalonian believers, <gasps> did we miss this? So Paul begins, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to him. Now both of those phrases are very comforting phrases to the believer. And from the Old Testament's perspective and from Jesus Christ's perspective in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, they're comforting, assuring, energizing promises. We ask you, brothers, 
not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, that's the content. The day of the Lord has come. How are they hearing about this? He says, by a spirit, by a spoken word, or by a letter. So what does that tell us? Somebody is feeding them a lot of false teaching. And presumably, I, I don't know how else we can understand that any other way, somebody sent them a letter, and whose name did they sign? Paul. You following? So it isn't just one guy comes into the church and says, hey, the day of the Lord has begun. Well, most people say, you're crazy. Get out of here. Where are you getting this? But it had been a whole series of things, including a letter. Presumably, I don't know how else to understand that. A letter, and somebody signed it as Paul. And so because of that, so I, I think, again, we're to understand that this is coming from multiple angles. We have no idea who it is. We, have no, we don't know anything about this except what Paul says. But it's shaking them up. And it, it, is that clear? I mean, you can understand why. It's really, this is unsettling. <gasps> oh, my goodness. So this is convincing. It had a, presumably as well an air of authority. So Paul says, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. The implication is what you've been taught is deceptive. What you have been taught is wrapped in deceit. Don't believe it. And now he begins. I've got about four minutes, but that's okay. We'll get started with this. What he does is he begins to lay out for them, and, and this is where we're going to end up, and it, it takes us until we get to verse 12. But he's going to lay out a scenario of three key events that must occur before the day of the Lord starts. Now, what I will try to do next week, and I, I don't want to turn this into a study of every prophetic verse in the Bible, <laughs> We'll be here for 17 months. But I want to just give you a very broad framework that we can get from the Old Testament, from Jesus' teaching, that he had taught them. And so he reminds them of a couple of things. For that day will not come until the rebellion comes first. Some of your translations might have the apostasy comes first. And second sign the man of lawlessness, some of your translations might have, man of sin is revealed. He is called the son of perdition. Now, let's take that second one first, and then we'll go back to the first one. And I'm not sure we even get that far in the remaining minutes we have. Who is this man of lawlessness, this man of sin? Well, if you, read, if you go on in verse 4, he's described who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. He takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, we know, as I told you, Paul taught them eschatology, taught them end times. And when he taught them, he would have taken them back to Daniel. He would have taken them to the teachings of Jesus. This is the little horn of Daniel. This is the abominable one who desolates of Jesus. This is the Antichrist of 1 John 2.18. Because every description of him fits this. He sets himself up in the temple of God to be worshipped as God. He's the beast of Revelation 13. Now remember, the teaching is end times teaching. And so naturally, 
you're going to have to bring this individual up. And so <coughs> this is it's a very important, it's a very, very, very important marker. The day of the Lord does not begin until the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of sin, the beast, the little horn, the abominable one who desolates. 1 John 2.18, the Antichrist. And by the way, that word, that term, Antichrist, remember in Greek, anti, anti, it doesn't only mean against, it means in place of, a substitute, a false Christ. And Jesus talks about him in Matthew 24. And four times in Matthew 24, it says he will be a man of deceit. So Paul is telling them, it's laying down a marker, and that's an important marker for you and me. And I'll talk about that event later next time. But the marker of the beginning of the day of the Lord is the appearance of the Antichrist. And certainly... For the Thessalonian believers to be reminded of that. Thank you, Paul. You reminded us of one of the central truths of God's word. The day of the Lord doesn't start until Antichrist is revealed. And he's not been revealed yet. He's going to explain some more of that next time. All right. Now. When he says temple. Yes. And since the Jewish temple is still there, right? Today, no, no, no. I mean, no. in the seventies. Yes, so when when this was written. Right mm -hmm, that's right. So did he mean that there's going to be a new Jewish temple, or what did he mean by that? Um, you you don't realize how big of a question you're asking there, because basically, Matt, the the the, the summary of it is that um, the Antichrist is or the Beast is going to make an alliance with the Jewish people and allow them to rebuild their temple. Now, immediately, if you are really paying attention and you're thinking about this, a thought has just come into your mind. On Temple Mount today is the Dome of the Rock. How in the world is that temple going to be rebuilt and the Dome of the Rock is there? Have, I mean, I, I've been to Israel many times. Have any of you been to Israel? I can't remember if you have. Okay, you remember, if you've been on Temple Mount, it's, it's 67 acres. It's massive. But right, not quite in the center, is the Dome of the Rock. So you try to think, how is that going to... But that, that the scriptures tell us that. And what he will do then is, this is in the middle, of what Jesus refers to in Matthew 24, 15. He will set himself up. This is he, the Antichrist, the beast. He will set himself up to be worshipped. And Revelation 13 is in details of how this is going to occur, what this is going to look like. And all, all Paul is, he's not getting any of these details. All he's reminding them is, remember, the day of the Lord is associated with the revealing of who the Antichrist is. And so they would have taken a deep breath and said, Whew, those guys were teaching us false teaching. They're wrong. So tomorrow, what I what I want to do, or I mean, um, next, next Wednesday, what I want to do. Now, this this is one of these Pandora's box type issues of Scripture. Once I open this box, there there can be endless questions. I may have to assume my dictatorial role in this class and shut down the discussion, but I don't want to do that. But I'm going to, I'm going to give you a chart next week, a, a very simple chart, but to try to outline what Paul is saying here. Because this is, this is why it is important, even for you and me today, that we keep our focus when it comes to end times teaching and make sure that we keep our focus on Christ. He said... I don't want you to worry about the timing of this. When I come back, you're not going to know the hour. You're not going to know the day. Just trust me. And his constant teaching is be ready and be faithful because you don't know when I'm coming back. So the task is, and this is, this is where it gets dicey for some Christians, the task is not to try to figure out who is the Antichrist. 
We're not supposed to try to figure that out. And I don't think we are going to figure it out. Our, our focus is what? Jesus said he's coming back for me. And he says to me, be ready and be faithful. So tomorrow we will, I mean, excuse me, next Wednesday, we will deal with all this in a short, pithy, succinct, non-provocative, non-controversial way. I doubt that that's going to happen, but we'll try. So, because the, this is important teaching. 27% of the Bible is prophecy. And that means it's important for us to come to terms with it. So let me pray. Lord, we are just scratching the service on this uh, prophetic material that we'll study in detail next week. Let's just focus, Lord, help us to focus on what we learned from that prayer, that you are at work in our lives by your grace, both to justify us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and then to engage in that process of transforming us into the image of Jesus. That's the sanctifying grace of, of your work in our lives. All of this that we do as we put our faith in Christ and as we live our life in dependence on you, resolve to do that which is good, working in doing the things that are pleasing to you by faith and dependence on you, so that bottom line, you get the glory for it all. Lord, I pray that for these men. I pray that for myself. May we, may we be vehicles of your grace. May people see our transformed life. May we exhibit the graces of you in our lives so that indeed you will get the glory for what we do. Help us to represent you well today, tomorrow. We look forward to regathering together again next Wednesday, Lord willing. So give these men a good rest of the day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.